Ladies and gentlemen, if you hear my voice, you hear the voice of Martin Vajovsky of Rob Walcott. It is because you are tuned into Re and Co Radio, where we jam with regenerative ideas and we mix them recklessly with through musical co-creation. We mix them with poetry and all kinds of beautiful things just to give them a different flavor, just really to demonstrate that the ideas that drive us forward also have an aesthetic dimension. The theme for today is recreation and co-innovation. And today our special guests are Rob Walcott, the head of Twin, the World Innovation Network. Uh, we have Martin Vajovsky, who's the head of innovation of SAP, also a very good-looking guy who plays an amazing bass guitar. And uh, I've had the, pro- the, the, the pleasure of also uh, witnessing his musical talents as well and creative acumen. In the room with us also is, as always, my co-host and dear friend Amanda Joy Ravenhill and Turquoise Sound. And we shall be also joined by Michael Ronan, who is a social play innovator, person who on this platform we are broadcasting from, Clubhouse, has gained a pretty amazing following just playing games with human beings and helping them feel human amongst humans during these strange, funky, and weird pandemic times. So ladies and gentlemen, with no further ado, I would like to give the stage to Miss Amanda Joy Ravenhill to give us a regenerative take on recreation and co-innovation. Thank you. It is always a pleasure to be here and synesthetically jam with you all. So one of my, I really love wordplay and when looking at the word create and seeing how people are usually acting in this world in react, they're actually the same letters. Create just has one extra E. And it reminds me of Buckminster Fuller's perhaps most famous quote in which he says, you can't fight things by changing the existing reality. In order to change something, you have to build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. And how important it is as the world is going through this paradigm towards whole systems understanding away from an overly mechanistic way of of looking at the world, how critical it is that we create and innovate in this time. That is the calling, that is what we are being called to do, that is the work of our time, is to step into this next paradigm, this paradigm that is nature-inspired, and to create and innovate from that place. And I, for one, just feel so excited to be able to be alive right now. It is threadbare in a lot of ways, and there's a lot to respond to, and also it is so exciting to be able to create from a nature-inspired way that so many Indigenous people have done for so long. So, thank you, and really excited to jam with you all today. So lovely, so lovely, so lovely. So, as you may have gathered, uh, this room is full of people who believe that the world needs a little bit of changing. And so today we have two very exceptional gentlemen, as I mentioned, Rob and Martin. And one of the discussions that I wanted to have today had to do with taking creativity, this God-given gift we have of weaving realities, spinning realities with our minds and then bringing them to fruition somehow through word and action. 
and then taking that and making that 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 god-given gift into something that can create tangible tangible value and create some kind of you know um outcome that can be leveraged by business and enterprises and so sometimes we have a problem with 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 just words you know what do they mean creativity innovation right uh, leverageable creativity and stuff like that and i would like to ask either of you to kind of dispel these myths or put these words in their place so that our listeners can understand the relationship between creativity innovation and and also disruption and just wanton 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 fun and play So, Jurgis, how would you would you would you like uh, one of us to start or just jump in? You jumped in. As long Great. As okay, jump I jump. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't feel any floor under my feet now, so that's a little weird. Um, yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks for having us, and I, I can't wait to listen. Um, I'll just open with a quick reaction. Uh, I, I think that creativity is contextual, and uh, I like to think about it in terms of what objectives what your objectives might be in your life experience so what are you trying to accomplish or or for that matter not accomplish i'm not trying to make it instrumental i'm just saying what is the purpose that you're that you're seeking um oftentimes we don't think about that and so then really anything happens uh so uh, so i think creativity is very contextual you might think about it in terms of trying to solve the problem and monetize things as you said and create uh, economic value but it might not have to have anything to do with that at all and then of course there are uh, plenty of cases where people weren't trying to pursue economic value and then somehow uh, along along the way it generated value in unexpected ways uh, maybe sometimes people think of serendipity which is uh, my second favorite word after synchronicity so I think the notion of creativity is, should be thought of as contextual and related to the kind of life experience that you're pursuing or the objectives you have within this life at any given moment which is quite uh, uh, quite varied I think as an exist as a, a version of an existentialist that that's a decision that we should uh, to, should make. And by the way, a last thought, even if we have no free will, uh, I, I believe we should we should approach life as if we do. So I'll leave it there. That's curious. Hold on, don't go anywhere, Rob. You said we don't have free will. No, no. I said even if we do not have free will, not and there are we... people with very cogent arguments on both sides, uh, a lot of uh, emerging neuroscience that suggests that maybe we have very limited or some people would even say non-existent free will. But I believe in terms of the, the practical or maybe I should say pragmatic uh, 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 existential approach to life, we need to proceed as if we do have free will. It's nice to think we have free will, right? Well, here, let me ask you a question then concerning that. Uh, from what I understand, from what I gather what you just said, that creativity within itself is is a value, is is something important. It's something that should should it, it's something that that is that is inherently inherently has a lot of worth, right? And so let me ask you, do we have a, a situation in the world right now where creativity is stifled or hampered or hindered? How do you think historically our creativity stands now compared to previous ages? And are we more creative, less creative? Is our creativity allowed to flow? Is it blossoming or is it in a, in a moment of oh, regression? My God. Uh, holy cow. Uh, 
Well, uh, gosh, I guess I'll answer that. My, my reactions to your uh, extraordinary penetrating question. First of all, uh, there have always been constraints to creativity. Uh, and second, we have 7.6 billion people on the planet, so we have quite a few more opportunities for creativity than we did uh, last year or the year before that. The other, the other uh, response I'll make is imagine that first moment, and this is something I've thought about a number of times. Imagine whatever that first moment was in history where a hominid, whether that's a homo sapien sapien or one of our predecessors, decided to, for whatever reason, create something that was not 100%, didn't appear 100% practical, that was um, uh, pleasing visually or expressed some emotion uh, outside of themselves. So think of cave paintings. Imagine the moment that the first hominid did that, that they had somehow not seen someone else do that. Uh, and then they decided to do more of it, perhaps, and others noted, noted it, and what did they take from it? So I think that was, that was a critical moment in the evolution of what we might call creativity. Uh, it's a very obviously anthro, uh, anthropic or anthrocentric uh, view of it, but um, I, I don't think we can entirely understand what creativity might mean outside of our, uh, our own experience. But... Um, that's where it started and since then there have been uh constraints and catalysts I, i'd also add that some constraints constraints can be used as catalysts to drive creativity and innovation particularly when you're trying to solve problems i like that idea you've already mentioned the constraints twice and i think i have to agree with you that it is a constraint at the end of the day which are like the darkness to the light you know something that it puts um puts what we're talking about or that creativity in place um, but I apologize for the really ridiculous question because at the end of the day trying to quantify somehow creativity in simple terms um, that wasn't very elegant of me but if there's anyone who can <laughs> unravel this conversation and lead it in, a in an interesting direction it is Martin and Martin before we hit you with the question of the relationship between creativity and innovation how does your how does how do your parents pronounce your last name Vezhovsky because I'm in Lithuania <laughs> <laughs> well uh, usually we take the family out and wait for a pretty windy day and stand against the wind and then we just open our mouths and the sound comes out and it sounds basically a <laughs> this is how we pronounce it. no it's not true it's pronounced Vezhovsky uh, and it means uh, as a snake. Vange is a snake, and ski is just we add that to everything and everyone. So yeah, Vanjovsky, Martin Vanjovsky, that's me. <laughs> but uh, let's talk about creativity. Interesting points. I mean, I'm all, already lost in space. Uh, at the same time, how intriguing this is. I think that tells us a little bit of how. Hmm, intangible cre creativity can be and how tangible it is in our everyday lives with, for example, innovation and value. Um, and I think it is, uh, creativity is a movement, creativity is, is a verb. As, as uh, someone very clever said, human is a verb, uh, was some British uh, fellow. And I believe that creativity is the opposite to uh, the absolute stillness, which we have not observed anywhere in the universe, not really. Maybe in some 
sort of isolated cubes, there's nothing, really nothing happening. But the closer we look, the more we see that something is becoming, it's changing, it's creating being created and I think the same with us uh, just imagine a life without creating anything new lifting a finger changing a molecule in your body means that you're dead right so I believe that creativity is becoming hmm. it's the it's the way of actually leading life rather than death and uh, we also and another angle on that we say that humans are creative and for example we can create art to express a becoming state that we cannot express in other ways so for example we create paintings because we cannot say what we mean we create poetry because normal language if you wish to call it like that cannot and so on so art is creativity but we connect that art to life, art of life. He's such an artist in life. Art of business, how many books have been written about that? Which means that this abstract, volatile, you know, uh, idea of creativity can be connected to something extremely tangible, like dollars in your pocket, like business. And so, so I think that's an interesting package there to, to, to look at. Um, are we creative and curious enough in business, in this most tangible values of our lives? Um, and I think we are not. And I believe, and it's a question to you, everyone, maybe, why are we so afraid of the creative flow? Uh, if you ask someone to create something, draw something, sing something, although they actually could, they are afraid to do that. And my proposition, my hypothesis, that we create becoming, uh, uh, so with that in the future, we will be someone else. Not only meet someone else, and we are by default a little bit afraid of the otherness. I mean, that's that's just uh, natural uh, selection and so on. You don't look like me. Maybe I should be a little bit cautious. But now we have the brain and technological capacity to imagine ourselves in the future, the other me. And I might be afraid of that. What am I becoming? Who am I creating? And I think it's a question that we need to dust off because the other me will be here faster than just 50 years ago. The other me I need to deal with and the people around it. <laughs> Who am I becoming? We need a little bit more of a vision to be creative. And this creative friction of the, the, the creative fear uh, is something I don't, I, uh, it's in my way. So help me understand that. You brought so much understanding to the table that I am, I feel like a deer in the headlights. You know, your ideas are like a car hurtling towards me. And I have to think, you know, I think the one that stunned me the most is the idea of creativity or creation as an act of becoming. That is absolutely beautiful. That is poetry to my ears. Also hey, Jurgis, can I build on that for a second? I mean, obviously, Martin and I have talked about these things a few times, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm not overstating my position when I say that I believe that the role of all education and socialization is to help us navigate imagination. Now, what I mean by that is not limited to help us use imagination to be creative, to create new stuff, which is wonderful uh, as part of the meaning of life, but, but literally to navigate all of reality because ultimately all of our not maybe not the external reality we can argue about whether there's an external reality or not that's another question but all of our experience 
of reality individually and in groups is constructed by our by our cognitive systems uh, so therefore we're using imagination in various ways in order to construct our acceptance of the world our interpretation of the world so i literally see all education is helping us to navigate imagination and by becoming better at navigating our imaginations and, and leveraging those resources external and internal and social we can therefore envision and create the becoming that Martin is talking about. Dang, that's so deep mm. as well. I love that. that was hey, so... can, can I reflect on that? Because you're waking another thought that I've been carrying, uh, Rob. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know. Wait, wait take, one second. Take... Martin, wait okay, one second. Because it's important to do some synthesis. <laughs> <laughs> We were talking with Amanda that we have to do synthesis where when we find something powerful, we need to sing it out loud just to ground it in our beings. So I'm, I still have that beautiful one that, you know, creation mm, is an act of becoming. Creation is an act of becoming. Oh, oh, the second one mark a uh, rob it was absolutely beautiful um, that our education should be and you correct me if i'm wrong it is to is to is to guide our imagination is that what you said exactly or i think you had a more eloquent selection yeah of words. now i use the term navigate because it's both something we create and something within which we sail. So I use the term navigate our creativity or our imagination, navigate our imagination. That's beautiful. Come on, so sing it with me. Oh, education is supposed to help us navigate imagination. Education is there to help us navigate our imagination. Who's gonna help me out? You know, we're going to have to hear your singing voices. We have to hear your singing voices. What it's happened? sings the cysts. Sings the cysts. We're going to sing it aloud. We're going to sing it aloud. Imagination. Is navigation. Imagination being navigated by education. Which is very curious because usually education has something to do with indoctrination, at least in the yeah. historic sense, right? That it's about, you know, yeah. everybody measuring in the same units, everybody using the same grammar so that everybody can talk to one another. Yes. It's actually a legacy of imperialism, well, right? But so Jurgis, that's Go. the easiest way to navigate. So if someone tells you the way the universe is and that's the way it is and will always be, that's actually the easiest way to navigate. It might not be the most fulfilling, the most fun, or even the most fair, but it is certainly the easiest. And so ready, easy, dependable answers uh, is what people, people often seek. And this is why we have a tendency to bias toward the existing paradigm because of, because of safety and, simpli- and ease. But that's, 
Right. But so much of what we need to do now is actually unlearning rather than learning, right? It's unwinding ourselves from that paradigm and daring to be naive, as Buckminster Fuller said, see things anew. I'm also reminded of what he said in terms of, you know, seeing the world in its ongoingness and its dynamic nature. And he said, I seem to be a verb. And lately it's been coming to me, you know, what if it's we seem to be a verb? Verb. What is that collective we and ongoingness that we are? And oh, for sure. Yeah, that that shift towards collective innovation instead of the lone genius coming up with all of these creations, which is kind of the story of Buckminster Fuller, but wasn't really the truth. He had so many teams around him co-creating Tensegrity and the Geodesic Dome, and. Um, yeah, I think unlearning the story of, of the lone creative genius is an important task of our time as well. Mm. Well, so many people would say that all reality is socially constructed. So we actually don't construct our experience without reference to others in a social context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe so too. I, uh, it's very hard to be someone without a reflection. Okay, I, I never tried. I mean, people have been locking themselves up in caves and trying to figure out the rest of the world, trying to become. Um, not so sure if that's. I mean, if that worked, we would be doing that much more. Uh, but we tend to do the other thing. We tend to hang out like we do here. Um, I, I don't know. Take anyone, Marie Curie two Nobel Prizes, absolutely useless, absolutely useless, unless she is put in a context of, as that Robert is, was also talking about, this, this context of, of we. What is she becoming? The value of that innovation, the value of her creativity uh, is reflected back to her and back to, to us all. Um, and it must, I know it sounds banal, like it's nothing worth unless I show it to you. However, I believe that this is what we maybe need to reconnect to. Uh, sort of the me, me, the strong me, the confident, the re-educated, of, of, if you wish, rediscovering, uh, and the we uh, uh, that contains all of us me's. And this is always ongoing. As soon as I say something to a group, like here, something new is created, your reaction brings value to what I said. There is no actual value or change in what I'm saying unless it makes you think. It moves one electron a little bit to, to that side and in your brain and all of a sudden you have a reaction and we have this creative flow or friction, if you wish, uh, that we can pursue uh, to understand the world and us, the me, we, a little bit better and then we say it again and this is an, sort of a never-ending story. And back to, to free will, maybe, uh, th- there is also an idea that we create this reality as we go. It actually doesn't exist until we act with it, co-act or co-create with it. Yes, thank you. You brought the magic word, co-act, co-create, the magic co. We firmly believe that the future is both regenerative, but it's also co-created. And I love it, Rob, that you brought up that idea that a lot of reality is just convention, you know, things that we agree upon. 
And sometimes yeah. agreeing is not necessarily very creative. It's not very imaginative. It it hinders our creative um, horizons. It it brings them a little bit closer, right? But what is true, and what I think in this case is that we have this kind of zero sum thinking when it comes to creativity, where we think that we have to hinder one another's creativity when we're interacting with one another. When possibly I would like to entertain that idea that maybe there's a quantic element there where we actually tap into a much broader subconscious or a much broader conscious that we can think more by aggregating our creative powers and not feel that we're simply restricted by them. But that's just like a, a thought I had when you were mentioning that thing about conventions and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we can tie this to uh, how you construct your lived experience and why you do what you do. And I and I tie that together with the notion of purpose. And purpose could mean your life purpose, your larger purpose, but it could also mean sort of mission objectives, things you're trying to achieve. The reason we can tie those together uh, is that people only see the things for which they're looking. Um, this is a cognitive adaptation we have. There's a lot of research around this. We literally miss everything else. And that's because we've evolved being being bombarded by potential stimuli every moment and our brains can't process everything. So we consciously and subconsciously recognize things that in some way, shape or form we're looking for. Mm -hmm. So therefore, if we have an objective or a question in mind, we're much more likely to see answers to it. Um, that would also then suggest that we'll hear and interpret from other people differently if we have different objectives or missions or purposes in mind. And if we have collective purpose, then we're more likely to see things that sync, that come together, that build on each other. So, so I think there's something to do, again, with what are our objectives or what's our purpose in terms of how we construct the reality the socially together construct reality or the reality as Martin would say that we want to create in the future that is so lovely I hear Martin typing away he's making <laughs> notes of everything we've said today he's writing a new dissertation or a manifesto for us creative types so we can change the world and so, or he's answering emails. <laughs> that's my backlog, my creative backlog. <laughs> uh, but but Jurgis and, and what you said, Robert, pretty cool stuff. Uh, what I typed type down is uh, creativity is observation. <clears throat> what I mean by that, spinning, uh, spinning on on that, it's a social behavior. Is that? And, and you said quantum, and that triggers me always, <laughs> because it's so close to belief or free will or any, any of those really tough, tough questions. If creativity is observation, what I mean by that is creativity is a comment on what we know, but with a spice of transformation. Yeah? Mm. Uh, otherwise, it's just status quo uh, confirmation. So creativity is observation. Oh, I see this. Uh, I say it, I define it by saying it through art, for example, or just through discussion. And I make you see what I see and I make you feel, which means that now you can observe and comment, which means that you create a reality that you have in your head. And that's sort of this quantum reality being forced to be observed and bounced back. If we didn't do this, there would not be anything. So how we observe and understand each other 
and we and I'm taking it all the way down to the art of listening, the art of allowance and freedom and socio sociological and psychological safety. How we observe the world and each other and try to understand is maybe this creative art of, of being together. Um, and there's actually no other way to be together. Uh, what I mean by that, if we do not see each other, I see you like this, there is no togetherness. That's only two, two things that are absolutely unaware of each other. So creativity is actually a, inherently a social behavior. It's observation of each other and the world we have around us. In any means and exchange of that the action of being generous enough to say it and make you feel um, and I think we're losing that sometimes too much especially in business this make us see make us feel uh, say what we imagine navigating that imagination that Robert said uh, that's a little bit stigmatic in business uh, it's it's that you don't have KPIs for that directly and and we, we could change that to be more co-creative in, in business as well uh, as in life what do you think guys yeah KPIs kill creativity if you ask me well, perhaps, but uh, it depends again on your objectives. If if our remit, if our objective is to take something that we've proven and scale it up, and you asked Jurgis, uh, how does this relate to val creating value, whether that's making money or having positive impact in the world? There is a point where where following through with a paradigm, a model that you've tested and is working and scaling it up is what you want to do. And you want to decrease the uncertainty and optimize. But if we do too much of that, then eventually we fail because the world changes around us. So simultaneously, we have to have an exploratory capability that continues to expand the circles within which we're exploring, that continues to trial and pilot new things. And that's true for a business, but it's, I think, also true for human beings. Um, sometimes we need to intentionally seek catalysts, seek new members of our tribe, our community to engage with, to find new paths. Or as my family and I just did during COVID, to make a physical move, to be in a different environment, uh, because that catalyzes new kinds of insights, experiences, uh, daily routines, etc. If we're uh, if we're entirely in a realm of free and open creativity without any guard guardrails, then we end up in entropy. And so there have to be some sort of uh, there has to be some sort of um, search for search for balance and dynamic that gives us the sort of life experiences that we desire. That's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, and I, I, just uh, to, to, to agree with Robert, unfortunately, <laughs> no, I, I like to agree <laughs> on this, <laughs> is that for me, KPIs are catalysts to drive an abstract that we created. Uh, so, <laughs> it's so funny already there. They are their reflection. Right. So uh, what am I doing? Uh, what is my value chain here? And I don't mean in business. How can this be valued by other individuals? This is why we talk. We give each other feedback um, A normal human discussion. Uh, maybe that sounds a bit unromantic that we discuss a topic until we uh, achieve harmonization and normalization of what we talk about. We mean the same thing. Okay. We share the sorry, 
key performance uh, words. Ah, you mean this, I got you. That's a reflection. So you create a monologue that, that becomes a dialogue. And when that is one, you have a common monologue, a common story, right? You can, what you do then is jazz it around. You bring in Miles Davis and do all the crazy stuff and try to find new words and new expressions through art, through business and so on. And you try to reflect. And, and to measure is one way to reflect each other. I, I think it's a very important one. Constraints in, for example, design field where I come from, but also in business, uh, which is a design field, and politics. These constraints are extremely important for uh, ingenuity to, to come out. Um, it is almost like this me-we sort of machine and it starts to reflect each other. Oh, how did you do that? What did you do? How did you measure? How did it go? Was it raining? What did you like it? All this contextuality and navigating that, 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 that space is, is good if it's measured, if it's good if it's got guard rates, but it's good to know what they are to, to obviously eventually break them or, or, or see if they are normalized and just boring and they are not guardless anymore. They are just status quo platforms. What do we do next? This is elevator music then, and <laughs> rather than Miles Davis. And I think this this completion of each other on a shared value, this complementarity, is important for us to move on, uh, to reflect each other. KPIs work perfectly for that. Yeah, this ain't no elevator yeah, I agree, music Mark. for you. <laughs> Damn, he agreed. <laughs> I agreed. I agreed. I agreed. Now you know, actually. I, I have I have an MBA. I, I I I did a master's in business administration, and I think it's one of the things that really helped me apply my creativity. But it's one of those things that I call to people's attention. You know, I say, hey, you know, you can be as creative as you want, but you know, if you're just going to be smoking joints by the pool, imagining you know the future, it's not going to get you anywhere. And I think I think I think it's it's thanks to deadlines and thanks to publishers and thanks to maybe the need of money that we have the beautiful works of of. Uh, of, of fantastic poets right you know uh, the first one that comes to mind is probably i don't know I, let me not name anybody but you know we have their works and they didn't go to waste in some opium den chasing a, a green dragon or, a, or an elusive emerald dragon you know in their dreams and so i do believe really in the necessity of you know grounding your things um, and it was also Hemingway who said that, you know, you can have as much creativity as you want, but you have to write as well. You have to sit down at that darn typewriter. You have to produce. And so I think there is a tension there. But let me ask you a question on the other hand. At what time, at what moment does, do those KPIs, do those restrictions start inhibiting our creativity? And I, I'd like to put that in the contents of the, of the jip we find ourselves today in this really difficult situation where we need some radical change but we have been so stifled by the restrictions of the economic paradigm, social economic paradigm, that we can't think beyond it. And so, and so, is it, is it a, a thing where we definitely need those kinds of uh, uh, deliverables at the end of the day, those KPIs, those grounding restrictions, or is there a point where we actually need to break free? Is there some point where those shackles have to come off, and we need to think differently? And how's that supposed to happen? Well, that should be a fundamental role of leadership, re true leadership. Changing before a crisis is a mark of great leadership. Recognizing when to adhere to what's worked in the past and when to explore what must be created in the future. And this, the higher you go in any organization, the more it's your personal responsibility to make room for that. Because 
the, the what we've always done will always be the easiest path. Uh, it won't necessarily be the right path or the best path, but it certainly is the default, the easiest. So that is the critical role for leadership. And um, I think leaders also um, sense the zeitgeist or the, 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 the path of time. So you'll, you'll all recognize this notion of does the, and apologies for the, um, the chauvinistic statement, but this is how it was made for, you know, most of history. Does the history make the man or does the man make the history? Um, so we could say, does the person make the history or does the history make the person? But um, there are people on both sides of this. Uh, Leo Tolstoy famously spent a lot of the Book of War and Peace um, opining about his belief that uh, even if Napoleon Bonaparte hadn't existed, someone else would have been Napoleon Bonaparte. Um, so he was on the side of history makes the person full stop and then others believe that the great leader has this this ex extraordinary mythical role in the world to catalyze things um I, I think it's an interesting academic conversation but i don't think it's particularly useful i think what is useful is to say we are in the context and flow in which we exist and we should as martin often says envision the futures we desire to create and then go out and use our resources and um, our attention and our effort in order to do our very best to create those futures and to work with others that um, uh, that that seek um, similar and hopefully positive futures. Um, so I think that that's how we have to think about breaking uh, the past paradigm and creating the new. Uh, and if we can, uh, the best I think we can hope for is to just be a half a step ahead of, of, of most people in society. I think, I think that's probably the best we can do because if we're way too far ahead like Giordano Bruno we get you know burnt at the stake and we're a nice cocktail story but um, but if we're too and if we're too far ahead we don't actually make that change happen in the world does that make sense <laughs> it's funny <laughs> we cocktail story oh yeah well yeah I mean okay so I exaggerate no, but no, you no, get my point indeed uh, perfect reduction of that gentleman uh, uh, I, I, <laughs> okay you put me off there it was funny leadership and you caught me on, <laughs> you caught me on leadership I absolutely uh, dove into that in my mind uh, to have that vision and you so, you so perfectly played it out I tell you a story uh, I told you before it was a close business meeting with a CEO of a bank uh, uh, in here in the world and we had basically our uh, closest uh, team members with us and a long hour or more to discuss how they would maybe transform and I talked about possible futures and the many that there are there and that science fiction is basically happening in front of our eyes and I showed some example including CRISPR-Cas9, what is humanity, what is actually human work. She was very polite, I understood later, until she wasn't <laughs> and said, she actually rose up a little bit like a silverback gorilla with fists on the table and she said, Martin, this is chaos. You should understand that I am, a, uh, not I am a bank, she, she was a sane person. She said, we, we run a bank uh, and you showing me chaos 
we are in the business of stability, she said, which is quite poetic for, for a description of a bank. And then we discussed what is the opposite of stability and what is stability all the way to status quo. And she thought it was instability and in the end chaos or entropy, as you say, Rob. Uh, but we agreed, maybe, at least I agreed, that the opposite to a stability is, is emergence. So it's not a plan, but it's a creative path forward. And when you said leader, and having at least a path, a north star, that you can say and make others feel is good. Because if it's only in your head, it's sort of an unborn creativity. It's only imagination, but not navigated. We need to put that on that table and take these first steps in any any forward movement, forward creativity that they're becoming before the road exists. It's, it's emergent and it's sort of the first step gives you the first place to put your foot down. Next foot will give you a place to put your foot down. So history and demand being the same there. Uh, and I think emergence is something that hinders some people because of the fear. They don't believe in emergence as a actual business activity or an actual business platform to stand on. And I wish they did. They, they had the guts to go out there without rigid plans, but rather with intentions, you know, commander's intent and all that, but translated yeah. to a much bigger uh, imagination. You know, you, uh, I Rob, totally Rob, agree, one, and it does second, take care. One, one, yeah, go second, ahead. Yeah, because we're 40 minutes into our conversation, and I didn't want to stop you. You're doing such a great job, really. You had me mesmerized with all the beautiful things coming out of your mouth. But we have to reset the room. We have to let our mm -hmm. listeners on KPCR-FM know that we are all in Clubhouse at this moment, engaged in a conversation about recreation and co-innovation, the relationship between creativity and innovation, and how we can better understand these two concepts to help them be more fruitful and a little bit used more deliberately to create positive outcomes. And I would like to remind everybody that although we will only be on the air for another 20 minutes or so, the Clubhouse room will still be open for another hour. If you want to come in, if our speakers are remain here, you can create, you can continue this conversation with us. And usually uh, these re and co rooms, they devolve into some form of crazy said we've got some people in the audience we have Bert Ola Bergstrand who is an amazing amazing guy who works with social capital we have Diana Beata Kruger which said there's too many penises on stage <laughs> she said we need, uh. we need a woman's opinion <laughs> and I wonder I definitely want to hear her opinion and uh, I see also that uh, did your wife come in here one moment? Did she? Uh, Rob? Uh, that was Stephanie Walt. That was my sister, and she was here for a moment, and then she popped out. I'm not sure why. Maybe I scared her with the music. But uh, anyways, no, you probably didn't. <laughs> so, they, so gentlemen, um, I feel at least that we are in a conundrum of sorts, and that conundrum has a little bit to do with the fact that we need kind of like a break in our thinking. Um, when you're exposed to indigenous communities and their cosmovision, their way of looking at the world, you kind of get the impression that we have been building our worldview on poor and faulty uh, tenets. 
tenets which are sometimes reactionary, right? You have uh, socialism as a response to capitalism. You have neoliberalism as a response to socialism. And we, we and this has been mounting for hundreds and hundreds of years, even in the religious domain. And so my question for you, if something is wrong with those tenets, if something is wrong with those tenets, how do you take creativity, wipe the slate clean, and how do you how do you even start to propose how do you even start to propose a fresh start? And that's kind of picking at what you said, Martin, that you know there should be more entrepreneurs, more leaders out there really taking more risk. That's the question on the floor. Well, I'm, I'm not sure where we can start with that, but I, I thought we were going to get some more, uh, you wanted to get some more perspectives uh, uh, beyond us. No, we'll get those. Yeah, I would love to hear hear that too, actually. Uh, otherwise, I think we will dig a hole here. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Okay, it's great. All right, so let's see. Maybe let's bring up Diana and let's bring up uh, Bertola. And anyone else who wants to raise a hand, uh, Mark, can you help us? How can you bring these people onto the stage? I know the person doing the video editing for our Instagram and Facebook stream is going to hate me for it, but I'm all about the conversation. I would really like to hear what other people have to contribute. Unless, of course, the lovely Amanda Joy Ravenhill does not have a deeply regenerative perspective to help us on our way. Regenerative bridge here, little interlude. Yeah, what strikes me is the the tenant of regenerative development and design, which is just that about development, and how critical it is that we are all constantly seeking that that inner evolution, looking for those edges to meet and then soften at and recreate in, and. That, that aspiration towards a, a developmental approach um, may seem simple, and yet if you're really challenging yourself and challenging those that you're working with to constantly develop, it's, um, it's different. It's, it's, a, it's a distinct way of operating. And like you said, in terms of the indigenous cultures and their cosmology, you know, we, we learn and unlearn and begin to really see ourselves in this, what Thich Nhat Hanh calls interbeing, um, and this interdependence, this underlying Ubuntu, as they say in Southern Africa, of, of I am because we are. And um, yeah, that's, that's what's sitting in my heart and mind as, as we're having this conversation. We'd love to hear folks um, yeah, react to that, <laughs> create off yeah. of that. Yeah, actually, Amanda, your your comments caused me to think about one of the businesses I'm very involved in. It's called Abroad.io, uh, and it's a, it's a human transformation platform. It's a platform for coaching, um, but uh, a number of other things. And part of our uh, mission objective is to synthesize modern science with, with traditional wisdom. So we have a traditional wisdom board a high priestess of Bali, um, our partner in Bhutan. Uh, we take people to Bhutan, obviously before COVID, hopefully after COVID. Um, and uh, New Zealand, uh, Maori uh, uh, leader as well. 
And we're trying to figure out how, what and how to incorporate traditional wisdom into mechanisms that will work today, that will speak to people, that will connect with people and be effective for helping them to live better lives. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll share one story that I love. And it's obliquely related to what you just talked about. And that was um, one of our quests to Bhutan, uh, in each of our quests, and which are usually 20 or 25 people, uh, we keep those small. Um, we always go to Dodedra Monastery, um, which is uh, uh, not a place that tourists go to. It's not hard to get to, it's about a two hour hike. Uh, you have to drive outside of the capital a little bit and then it's about a two hour hike. It's not that hard to get to, but it's not a place that any tourists go to. And frankly, not a lot of Bhutanese go there either unless they're somehow related to the monastery. So at this monastery, the abbot of the monastery has taken a liking to us over time and we get down and his, his group they will do a long life ceremony uh, for us when we visit. And so we all uh, uh, wear the traditional outfits and, and try and learn a little bit about their expectations and how to interact most uh, respectfully. And they do this uh, hour long, long life ceremony, okay? Which is quite beautiful and totally out of body, sort of very different than our daily lives for sure. And then um, the second time we did this, one of our travelers was uh, a banker. I mean, very, very uh, practical guy. The, the, he had recently retired as the vice chairman of one of the big global banks. Uh, very open-minded guy, but you know, he's a practical fellow. And he's trying to take this all in. Um, he's bringing his Western mindset uh, to this experience. And after the long life ceremony, the abbot always offers some time for Q&A. And so we have an opportunity to sit and, and chat and ask questions. And Spencer, uh, my friend who is uh, uh, this banker, he asked the abbot, so uh, first of all, thank you so much for the gift you've given us, but I'm trying to understand how does the ceremony, how do you believe that the ceremony you just gave extends life? How does it provide longer life? And the abbot sort of smiled and said, if you believe it, uh, it lengthens your life, then it does. If you don't, then it doesn't. And he smiled. So there was an interesting moment where he sort of threw our science-based um, practical approach back at us and asked us in a sense indirectly to question our beliefs about reality and about life. Uh, and it was, it was really an epiphany for, for a lot of us. I love that story, uh, Rob. Uh, I heard it a couple of times each time. Uh, it has, it also has a fantastically invigorating comical effect to it. I can just imagine the, the spiritual leader there saying that and knowing, oh shit, he's going to be confused now. <laughs> right, right. And that's connection, that's, that's belonging. Hey man, if you believe it, well, then you believe it. If you don't, guess what? You don't. <laughs> Uh, he was he was teasing us and teaching us at the same time. Oh, how beautiful! How beautiful! Um, and Amanda and Rob, between you, I uh, had a reflection there. Would like to share. So, in indigenous com communities, it's a one thing, but let's make it 
larger, I was thinking about knowledge or, or if you wish, wisdom, whatever that is, as, as sometimes we call it property, uh, intellectual property or physical property. And we see how uh, sort of skewed ways of thinking about this fantastic capital we have around us in, on the globe uh, is, is not distributed in such a way that we can all benefit. And I'm wondering if we lost the connection, spinning off you, uh, Jurgis and Amanda as well, the connection to uh, to knowledge or, or maybe wisdom uh, in in um, in this constant remix that we could have had because of technology. Do we disconnect from some remix sources <laughs> like other groups, uh, companies, if you wish, business adventures, tribes maybe? Uh, or uh, tribes of people that is uh, that doesn't have to be indigenous tribes, beliefs, or did we even disconnect with, from some facts, emotions? Uh, because all of these are homo sapiens, if you wish, property, right? And I'm asking this question from this reflection perspective. Uh, if the future was an asset, a resource, uh, we haven't distributed it, uh, you know, uh, around the globe perfectly well yet, as, as a science fiction writer said, and it's and it's a fantastic resource because future is created as we think of it. It's imaginary. It's a renewable resource with anybody, but also the properties that we have of learning from before, how we connected before, and as a leadership would be balancing with this future as an asset, knowledge, knowledge, future knowledge built on what we know and the exchange, the leadership has got lost in segregated or discrete tiny groups where we don't reach each other, emotions, facts, beliefs, uh, tribal behaviors, and, and so we don't remix all the sources that are laying bare there in front of us, but we don't touch them because they are just seen as others. And for me, that's, uh, I can't, I don't know how to solve that, you know, start discussions in small groups, I know. But how do we connect back to each other and use this technology we have in front of us to do to, to that? Facebook obviously didn't work. What to do instead? What do you think? I feel absolutely compelled to bring in a little bit of woo into the room because it wouldn't be Rianco if we weren't walking on that thin line of, of what is acceptable and unacceptable. And I'm going to take a quote from a guy called Manly P. Hall which uh, is a guy who loves talking spirituality, theosophy, cosm cosmology, things like that. And one of the things that he said, which completely blew my mind a couple of days ago, was he was talking about esoterics and he says that esoteric knowledge is not knowledge that is hidden. It's not hidden from human beings. It's knowledge that we are not prepared to take in, that we are not prepared to recognize and integrate into our own worldview. So you may have heard it a million times, but you weren't ready to take it in, which was the same as if you hadn't heard it at all. And I think that's really, really curious because we start talking then about belief systems really affecting our way of innovating and creating together. Seeing the same things like Robert had mentioned initially about, you know, conventions that create some commonality from which we can grow things or from which we can move or depart. But so let me ask you about belief systems and, you know, belief in this role of creating together and innovation. Wow, you keep throwing out these. Uh, I feel like I'm floating somewhere between uh, Earth and Mars right now, trying to get my bearings. Um, I belief. Uh, I always like to go back to William James, who's probably my favorite uh, philosopher. 
and he said attention equals belief so he didn't say that attention affects belief he said it equals belief and what he meant by that was uh, what to what we attend affects what we believe and what we believe affects what we choose to pay attention to and he said this in the, at the very end of the 19th century uh, and so if we think about that today in our context of social media and echo chambers and all the things that we've been dealing with increasingly um, we start to see how these belief systems start to congeal around various groups and subgroups and they can either bring us together or amplify our distinctions from each other, the us and them uh, that we're seeing writ large in the United States, for instance, right now. And so your, your beliefs about the world will frame what you're willing to pursue, what you're willing to and think is even uh, the right way to be in the world. Um, so, of course, that affects how you direct your creativity. Uh, it affects with whom uh, you engage in creative uh, acts uh, and efforts, and it affects the objectives you seek to achieve. So, um, beliefs are, all, all of life is based on context of belief or uh, um, a web of beliefs, as others have said. Hmm. We're getting um, deep. Um, we're, we're getting, getting deep. deep. And, and I, yeah. I, I learned a lot from uh, Rob talking uh, about belief systems uh, because we, we don't share the same platform there. Um, I think belief is a fantastic drive. Uh, where it comes from, so we can talk about another time, but for me it's hope. Uh, I, so I believe that this is good. I have a belief in this I want to share and imagination in sort of a combined uh, entity. So I hope for this and I have imagination how that would be. I want to share that with you. And as long as that is not dogmatized or put in a dogmatic box, uh, some religions do that. Uh, that's death of creativity, basically. You know, you, you should wear this hat if you believe in me. That's absolutely bad. But if there is open hope and open imagination to share my beliefs so you can remix that, uh, that's an absolute drive. It's necessary for innovation and uh, progress, say, for example, in science, because progress we can discuss also uh, a lot. But I be believe is a driver. It's, it's basically food and sun power transported to imagination and hope and then words and artifacts and art and us. Well, yeah, no, let me let me clarify, Martin. I completely agree with you. I mean, the, the, the greatest leaders that pop up, they they deal in belief. Um, belief is the coin of the realm. Uh, and those that are uh, we might consider uh, to be negative forces in the world are trafficking in beliefs. Um, and, and so, you know, if you think of an Oprah Winfrey, she thrives because of her ability to uh, connect with people and create belief, not only in herself, but also in the people that she brings to the table, to her show, etc. Um, all, all great leaders have somehow to define beliefs in order to bring others along with them. Um, otherwise, they, their followers won't suffer the slings and arrows, uh, or at the very least, can commit the attention necessary to, to follow them. That's wonderful. There, uh, there's great power in belief, but it's also very dangerous. Yes, yes. Yeah, but that's, that's it. I mean, that's uh, the secret sauce that makes uh, the creation of worlds go round. 
And it's interesting that we bring it up. We are down to our last minute. Ladies and gentlemen, we have had a wonderful show today. I've really enjoyed it. Can we get a lot of love for Martin and for Rob and for Amanda? I would like you all to know, everybody who's tuning in on Instagram, everybody who's tuning in on KPCRFM, that we will continue to be here in Clubhouse and we will open up the room. We will be jamming a little bit more for as long as there are questions and as long as it is fun. We will be bringing people up on stage. I would like to remind everybody that Reinco Radio is on every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific noon Eastern time and 4 p.m. GMT don't forget to join us new jams on regenerative ideas and wanton co-creation every week here on Reinco Radio